Edward Abbey's The Fool's Progress is a semi-autobiographical novel about Henry Holyoke Lightcap, who, determined to make peace with his past, goes on a cross-country odyssey with his dying dog after his third wife leaves him and he shoots up his refrigerator. On the road, there's lots of booze and misanthropy, and that's pretty much all I can tell you. I promise we'll get into all of that. Welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where we get to know interesting people by asking them about their favorite book. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and my guest today is Tyler Foley, an accomplished actor and public speaking coach and trainer. He also has the distinction of being the first guest ever on this podcast who I had to confront before our recording and admit that I hated the damn book he chose so much that I could not finish it. Friends, you all know by now that the whole point of this podcast is to learn about what other people like, not to criticize it. I never want to yuck anyone else's yum. You know what I mean? But this one, holy moly, this book was tough. Nevertheless, it turned out to be one of my favorite conversations ever on this podcast because Tyler is great fun to talk to. He's thought about this book a lot, and he can make a solid case for why it's important to read it. I know that whether or not you ever read this book, you're really going to enjoy hearing why Tyler thinks The Fool's Progress is the best book ever. Hi, Tyler. Welcome to the Best Book Ever podcast. Oh, Julie, I am so looking forward to our conversation. I've had this circled for weeks. Literally, I am I am busting at the seam to, to have this discussion with you. Listen, take your gloves off. We're going to get into that in a few minutes, but we're going to start with your reading life in general, because I'm really I have a real purpose for that this time, because I really want to know how you got where we're going to this book that we're going to talk about later. So tell me. In general, what's how do books figure in your life? What is the role of reading in your life? Well, it's interesting because it, it's really an ebb and flow scenario. I was a voracious reader when I was younger, um, particularly growing up in the theater and fine arts, because you spend a lot of time doing a lot of nothing and having to entertain yourself. And growing up in the 70s and 80s, uh, there was no tablet or my mom to give to me. And so I would, I would re and we lived in a small town south of the uh, major city that I grew up near. So we're about an hour outside of the city. So when I would have to come in to do performances, um, mom would have to drive me. And so at least an hour was spent in the car and all I would do is read because it was too hard to do homework in the car. Mm. And then when I'd get to, um, to stage and I'd get backstage and I'd go through the theater door, um, then I would usually meet my tutor there and we'd go through whatever schoolwork I had to get done. And then there was a lot of time to just sit around again. And so I would do a lot of reading and a lot of puzzles. So I read a ton at, in my youth. And then um, when I moved out on my own books, I suddenly realized were more of a luxury than <laughs> a necessity and so I started to limit my reading to uh, trips to the library and I'd go to the library a lot because then I could get my books for free. Um, but it, it limited my ability to just go like I, when growing up, we had a huge library in my house too. My father was a teacher. And uh, uh, when he passed away, I inherited his and he passed away when I was six years old. I inherited all of his books. So I got 
you know, all of Tolkien's work. So like I got the Silmarillion and Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. The first book that was ever read to me was the Hobbit. So reading was a part of my life. And then it, um, at, as I got older and got married, it became less important. And then as I started to get into a lot of personal development and personal growth, then I switched from a lot of fictional work to um, nonfiction. And now I read a lot of nonfiction. And then the, you know, the fiction works are for uh, vacation and guilty pleasures and just kind of when I do uh, whatever, when, I, when I'm just looking for my, my entertainment. You've been a working actor then i saw in your bio you've been a working actor since you were six years old yeah yeah uh 37 years wow so what how do books figure in an actor's life do you do every time you read are you envisioning how to play a certain character or wondering how you would approach it or do, are you able to divorce from your work when you're consuming other forms of art a little column a little column b so mm. um I know a really good book when I'm not analyzing it, but I also know a really good book when at the end of it and I haven't analyzed it, I go, now I have to go back and reread that because I want to figure out how to adapt that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is this work good for film? Is this work good <laughs> for television? Is this work good for theater? How could I adapt? How could I make this come alive to the masses? I remember reading The Shack. Um, my uncle gave it to me. And just loving that book, loving that book and wanting it to be a a film. And I actually looked up who had the rights to it. And it sat in, you know, in production and, and right tie ups for years and years and years and years and years and years. And finally, it got produced as a film and actually did a really good job. But like, even when I was reading it, I was casting different people. Um, you know, I had uh, a whole I, I had the whole cast laid out in my head of who would be who and in it. And, um, so like, I, I do do that. I, I, I will analyze them and break them down. Do you try to put yourself into roles or personalities like as an exercise? Yeah, not so much anymore. I do remember doing that, um, growing up. Uh, I remember reading a book called on the devil's court and it was, um, a play on Faust actually. And the main character was theoretically related to to Foss in some way. And, um, it was, a, it was a, a young adult fictional novel. And I remember, and I was a huge, I loved basketball. I'm only five foot eight full grown as an adult. <laughs> I think in junior high, when I was reading this book, I was in the, the mid fours, like four, six, four, seven, but I love basketball. I was a point guard. I, I used to distribute the ball a lot. I, I couldn't really shoot, but I could pass really well dribble. I was really, really fast, loved playing basketball. And reading this book really spoke to me. So I, I do remember um, thinking, you know, like I could play this role. But now I now I don't because frankly, I'm removed it because I've been acting for 37 years, but mm-hmm. now it's a part time hobby. It's a hobby thing that I do when I'm not doing my regular job. And, you know, regular job is nine to five speaking on stage. I haven't gone I haven't gone far uh, in my career from, you know, performance to now just uh public speaking, but that's, that's all I really do. At what point did you know you were also a writer? I've been writing all my life. And so like I I was theoretically a published author when I was 10 years old, because in my elementary school at 10 years old, I had a poem published 
um, when I was in the sixth grade, um, my teacher published one of my short uh, plays. I actually, my junior high language arts teacher, I'm still in touch with because she was also my drama teacher in junior high. And I owe a lot of my um, development in theater to Aaron Weeb. Um, she brought me back one of my short uh, stories that was um, published in the anthology in one of the anthologies uh, just recently because she does reading for me for my auditions. And, uh, and so I, I had phoned her up and I said, and she's just in the course of a move and she'd actually brought me <laughs> one of my, my short plays. It's, it's literally sitting on my desk, just off to the right here, right underneath my current published work. Teachers are miracles, aren't they? They are. They are a gift to the world. Yeah. So tell us then about the book that you recently published, The Power to Speak Naked. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was a, a fun exercise. Um, we took all of my training videos, uh, public speaking, because I speak on speaking. It's so meta. What do you speak <laughs> about speaking? No, what do you speak about? Yeah, no, how to speak. <laughs> um, and so we took uh, the audio from all of my video training sessions and then transcribed that audio and compiled it into the book. I, I'm sure you get asked this every single time you speak. So I'm just going to ask the really obvious question. Why is everyone so afraid of public speaking? Uh, the reality is they're not. Mm. So most people think they are afraid of public speaking until you realize you speak in public almost every day. The reality is most people are afraid of public judgment. So if you were to go to a restaurant right now and order food, you're speaking in public. And if you don't know your wait staff, you're very likely speaking to a complete stranger. So this notion that I'm afraid to speak in public or I'm afraid to speak in front of strangers, I'm afraid to ask for what I want. No, because you ordered your, your hamburger and fries and it came to your table. So the notion that we're afraid to speak in public or to strangers or to ask for what we want is null and void if anybody's ever been to a restaurant. And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, but nobody's looking at me. And I said, so what's the difference then when people are looking at you? And it's this fear of public judgment that when I say a thing, that it's going to be perceived poorly and that I'm somehow going to be made less than uh, if I express my opinion. And so the stage fright real thing. Fear of public speaking, completely and totally. There's very few people in the world. I do know a few, um, but it's literally, I can think of two examples of people who I know who are actually legitimately have a phobia around speaking in public, but it's speaking in public. Like they won't speak to anyone. They outside of the confines of their house, they are mute. So it's interesting that you say stage fright's a real thing. That's strange that that exists because in that case, you already know, you don't have to invent anything, right? You you already know what you're going out there to say. You have rehearsed it many times. Unlike at a restaurant, I don't know what the hell I'm going to order before I go in, right? But that's freeing. So I, I will tell you right now, as a trained performer, mm. the, the greatest gift I gave myself was when I stopped saying other people's words and started saying mine and gave myself the permission to say the, my words the way that I wanted to without worrying about how others perceived them. Um, because at that point, you uh, the, all the judgment is taken off. And in fact, the audience isn't, isn't judging you, right? We don't, 
it, it's a it's a false perception that this audience is somehow perceiving you negatively. It's all projected up in our head, you know. And you just think of it because you're thinking it right now. You you don't go to a play and sit down and go, "Man, I hope this sucks." You're exactly uh, right. I've, you know, I've seen this play done five times. I hope this is the worst cast and the worst staging of it ever. You know, like we don't do that. So the audience is on your side. And as a public speaker now, they don't have no idea what I'm going to say. Right. So I, I again gained a freedom of surprise. You don't know what I'm going to say until I say it. I don't sometimes don't know what I'm going to say until I say it. And that gives a dynamic to allow me to really engage with my audience and provide value for what they actually need as a versus a play where, although we've rehearsed, I assure you, actors forget what they were supposed to say <laughs> and often. And, um, and then on top of it, it's worse when you're in a well-known production and people know what you're supposed to say and they can do it better than you. <laughs> you're like, oh, uh, line, please. Yeah. Anyone in the audience, line, please. <laughs> oh, that sounds awful. Yeah, it can be. It can also be one of the greatest joys ever. Like when when you connect with an audience, whether you're doing a stage production or whether you're doing a public speaking engagement, like a keynote or something like that, or even a training seminar. When you can, when you, when a performer and an audience can come together and, and feel the work together, uh, there is, there is no greater feeling in the world because you are connecting with beyond yourself and beyond a one-on-one relationship. You are connecting with, with an audience, with a, a mass of humanity. And there is an energy that is palpable, that is undescribable until you have actually felt it. Um, but nothing beats a standing ovation. Like there's, there's, I, and I've, I have done many, many, many things in my life to get my adrenaline up and none of them, uh, come close to a standing ovation. Okay. Let's turn to this book, <laughs> this book, Tyler, <laughs> this 400 page semi autobiographical work of Edward Abbey. Okay, let's start with, do you remember how you found it or how you first came across this? Vividly, vividly. Mm, tell me. I, um, When my father passed away, I was part of the Big Brothers program. And the big brother that I was paired with, Craig Nelson, who is a beautiful human being and, and, and just an incredible soul, um, was uh, a tour guide in Mexico. So he lived in Canada. I live in Canada. And he... he resided in Canada for eight months of the year. And then for four months would go down to either Mazatlan or Puerto Vallarta. And he had this tour guide company and he would organize uh, week long or two week long excursions for Canadians to come down and experience real Mexico. So you didn't stay on one of the all-inclusive resorts. You came down and he would rent out a casa uh, off the resort, off of the golden zone, uh, you were in either township proper and the, I would have been 14 uh, between eighth grade and ninth grade. And that was the year that we were in uh, Mazatlan and the house that we rented had this massive library, this massive collection of books for people to read by the pool. They had, they had this really beautiful outdoor pool and um and then there was these three villa style houses around 
private gate. And uh, so I would read when on my off time. And there were a couple of books that I picked up that year. Uh, Don't Sit Under the Grits Tree with Anyone Else But Me, which is a fantastic collection of short essays um, that were published in a Southern newspaper. And the other book was The Fool's Progress by Edward Abbey. And I remember it was 400 pages plus. So that, you know, almost 500. So it, uh, I think Edward Abbey himself called it the, something like the thick masterpiece or something like that. It's just massive. And so I knew it would, you know, keep me entertained. And I, the funny thing is, is I started reading it like a week before my time in Mexico was done and I had to come back for school, but I hadn't finished the book. And so I kept it and I I ended up reading it on the plane and finishing it in the air. And I'm so thankful I did because when, where I was in the book, I hated the book. I was like, this is the, why am I still reading this? I'm doing this just because I'm stuck in this thing. I am stuck on this journey and I'm not a quitter. I am not a quitter. I'm going to get through this book. And then um, when I got to the end of it, uh, I'll, I'll never forget it because it was just before we were to touch down and I was crying. I was absolutely bawling my eyes out. I, my heart was broken for Henry. I just, I, I finally understood the man. And I was like, I've, I, I felt I was crying out of guilt because I'd hated him for 450 pages. And, and then I was, I was heartbroken for him. Just absolutely heartbroken. It, it just, it touched me. And then, and then having read it, then I had to go back and reread it. I'm like, how, how could I be so wrong about this man like how could i be so wrong and so i i got home and first thing i did i gave it to another friend of mine um uh liam stone he was like what did you i was like i read this book so you got to read it and so me and he I, I gave him the copy that i'd gotten from mexico and then purchased a new copy for me and then we read it together and first 50 pages i'm like no, this man is irredeemable. What is wrong with this guy? And and I I went right back to not liking Henry. I'm like this. No, he he's he he is the worst kind of human. And then this time, instead of crying at the end of the book, it was three quarters of the way through the book where it where my soul was just crushed for him because I knew what was coming. But I also knew how he got to where he was at that stage. And I knew how crippling the events that happened three quarters of the way through the book were to his psyche and why the end ends up the way that it was. And then it was even more tragic mm. and more sad. And I, I actually had to put the book down for about two days because I, I was just devastated. I'm like, I can't, I can't go on. This is an actual you know, concrete example, they always tell you, you know, I always see these stories about how fiction readers supposedly have higher levels of empathy. And that played out perfectly in that, like it, it, you felt it so deeply in your heart. You couldn't even finish reading the book once you knew the story, which is really what we're all trying to achieve, right? Is especially now we're just trying to understand each other. And you achieved it through this book by understanding this absolutely irredeemable person. And I think that's one of the things, yeah, that I like the most about the book is that 
Henry is the absolute opposite of who I am as a man, as a human being. Um, but I don't think he was always that way. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I love the most about the book, A, it is semi-autobiographical. So uh, once you read the book, it it's always uh, uh, fun exploration to go back into uh, Edward Abbey's essays and read um, The Journey Home, which is, uh, uh, so it's it's nonfiction, right? It's an essay of him and, and his life um, beyond the wall and Abbey's Road. And when you read those, then you really start to see how much biography is in this fictional work. And that's why I think it's semi-autobiographical and why, and why he, uh, Edward Abbey himself noted that it was, it was truly semi-autobiographical, that a lot of it is based on his experiences and how he got there. And it just shows that, you know, there are, it's never even just two sides to any story. There are mm-hmm. multiple sides to, to any person, any human, um, any civilization, any country, any group, uh, that the, it, there is no such thing as black and white. And when we try to distill things down to a binary equation, we often miss the nuance and mm-hmm. it's the nuance that's important. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love this book and the, and the setup of it too. Because the very first chapter uh, isn't even the first chapter. It's the prologue, you know, and it's all done in, in parentheses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's early Henry. You know, it's our, it's our first introduction to Henry and we never meet him. And I think that's the thing that I love the most about this book, rereading it, is that uh, it pays off in the end that you understand that you never knew Henry. You never get to know Henry because the opening is at the beginning of his life at that one room schoolhouse at the turn of the century in the Appalachians with his school teacher standing out on the front screaming his name and getting no response. And it's and you don't even get the the luxury of and he was hitting hidden in the woods giggling. There is just no Henry. There is no Henry. And then you get this jarring chapter to begin with of and it starts with his his third wife who you never even meet slamming the door and his tirade that goes on after that and then and then a very fast glimpse into his mental state including his mental health his struggles with uh alcohol his struggles with suicidal thoughts like all of these things are just shoved down your throat <laughs> like instantly you're like whoa who is this dude and the way that edward abbey um plays with that narrative from past to present day and how the two slowly build together because the chat the way that the structure of the book works you go present day past present day past present day past present day past and you're doing that on this converging timeline where when you finally get together at the end of the book, you're at New Mexico with him in that trailer uh, with the fight that begins the tirade and his sojourn home to the Appalachians. And he's got to do that with a truck that is dying with a dog that is dying. And then we discover our, that he himself 
is dying. There's a great passage in there where he's uh, going over um, some mountains and he puts it into uh, Mexican overdrive and he, which is throwing the truck in neutral <laughs> and coasting down the hill to save gas. And he talks about how the, um, the vehicle slows from 60 to 50 to 40 until, how does he word it? Basically until it needs to give up, don't we all? And he puts, and that's the other thing too, these, these side notes that he puts in parentheses all the time. Like he's having this conversation with you. Like you're almost there with Edward Abbey slash Henry. And he's talking to you. It's, it's the literary version of breaking the fourth wall in theater. Mm-hmm. And I just, I love it. I just love it. And I hate, I hate Henry, but I love the book. <laughs> wow. I think you've convinced me to read it. <laughs> <laughs> only, only if you, only if you can. I, I understand, uh, Julie, that it is, first of all, it's not for everyone. Um, it is my favorite book, but it is not the world's favorite book. Um, and and honestly, I think it's a really interesting um, testament to a, a, a male psychology versus a female psychology. How so? Because every guy I give this to says it's the greatest book they've ever read. And only about half of the women I've given it to can appreciate it. And why do you think that is? Uh, because I think Henry... Um, I can have empathy and sympathy for him as a man, and I can appreciate a lot of his struggles with society, being an outcast, um, being a nonconformist, even though I don't agree at all with his politics or, or his beliefs. I understand his rationale. I understand how he can get there because I wouldn't have made the same decisions. And so it's a great exploration of, of masculinity, of toxic masculinity of misogyny, mm-hmm. of uh, uh, an, an interesting uh, play on racism and how a lot of racism is learned versus, you know, like we, we don't inherently, we're not born hating people, right? We learn that's a cultural thing. And, um, and so I, I find all of that, the exploration of how he got to be to where he is, um, I can understand it. But I can see from from a feminine energy where he's just offensive, especially his his treatment of women, because if you can't get to like the 350, 450 page mark, you have no idea how this man loves. And that's when you start to understand where why Henry. So he isn't irredeemable. He does have love. He is a good man. He wants to provide for his family. He wants to protect his family. All of his decisions are made from a place of wanting to be a family man. And then everything else that comes after that, when that, when it's all taken away is his depths of despair and him just giving up him giving up on life. Yeah. I felt like he was really hard to get a handle on because here's this alcoholic gun crazy what looked like from the chapters i read woman hating sex obsessed racist who what quotes nietzsche and has very strong opinions about brahms and i I don't know 
I, whiplash is the best way I can describe my feelings. Yes. I kept going, what, what are, wait, what? And, and no, and that's, and that's the thing. Like you have this articulate, educated man who's storming around like a man child. And I, again, I, until you get to the end and then reread and realize that mm. the, that, that, that pro, uh, prologue sets you up. You don't ever know who Henry is. And partly because Henry is constantly evolving, which I think is a beautiful testament to the human experience. Me, Tyler Foley, right now is not the same Tyler two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, mm-hmm. 20 years ago. I'm constantly evolving. I'm constantly changing. So this expectation that this character uh, who, again, we're having this divergent path of past Henry and present Henry, and that somehow they're the same human being is is false you know you would of course of course they're totally different human beings but at the same time because you don't you you don't learn past henry until so late in the novel present henry can be so jarring because you're like how are you you (laughs) why do you know these things like he is you know he's a philosopher Mm -hmm. there's a, a point where he's a social worker and then he's, uh, you know, um, his his favorite job that he does is uh, a park ranger. You know, it's where he feels most at home because he feels close to nature. Like he is a he is a truly giving and caring man, but you don't you don't get to see it for four hundred pages. You know, all you get to see it, particularly growing up, is his uh, love of his mother, his his um, fear of his father, his jealousy of his brother his sorrow over the loss of his brother. At some point, there's no, there is no point in the story where you can't relate with Henry on some level at some point. You may not be able to relate with him on every point, but at some point in his journey, you go, oh, I get it. And again, I think from a male perspective, there are more of those aha moments. You're like, okay, no, I, I get it. And it's interesting too, because as I re-experience this book every couple of years, it speaks to me more and more and more because 14 year old me really couldn't understand some of the significance of the loss. 43 year old me with a seven year old daughter and a wife who has changed my life wholly and completely. The thought of their loss and especially to have them removed from me out of my control would devastate me. And I'm sure I could, I could understand. I don't know that I would do the same things that Henry would do. I'm sure I would choose to deal with them differently, but I can definitely, definitely empathize with how he gets to where he is. Because at that point, he tried doing it the one way, it didn't work. He tried doing it the right way and it did work, but then it didn't, it was taken away. So why bother? Mm -hmm. Why, you know, like I can see the complete removal of give a fuck Mm -hmm. (laughs) in Mm -hmm. henry's life to the point where he becomes truly an irredeemable human being or at least on the surface until you understand that he he is a complex individual who is just really hurt so i we have to tell our listeners the backstory of this, which they all know that the, the premise of this podcast is that I read the book in advance so that I can ask you specific questions. But this book was an interesting journey. And I got about 50 pages in and I emailed you that I hated it. 
And I have never done that with a guest before. I was really, really nervous because honestly, it's a dick move. You know, come on my podcast, tell me about your favorite book. And then to immediately go, your book sucks. Like, <laughs> that's the rudest thing I've ever done. <laughs> but you did. You didn't say that the book sucks. It's a, and, and you were very eloquent with how you said it, and, you know, that you were struggling with it, that you didn't, you know, this was your concern. This is your viewpoint of it, which is entirely acceptable. And what did I say? You were so kind in your response. You were, of, the first thing you said was, yeah, whatever you want to do, we'll do, which was very nice of you. But you also said, and I wrote it down so that I could quote you to you, you urged me to continue and you told me the payoff was worth it. And you said, he is racist and misogynistic, but by the end, you understand why he's like that and ultimately why he is not actually those things. The fact that you did have that reaction means that you are on the right journey with this book. So I have to thank you for your very civil response to my message. And I, I tried to go on a little bit more. But then I thought, you know what? I'm just going to ask you to tell me why I should continue. I, I sometimes think that my instinct to give up on a book that I am not madly in love with is not serving me well all the time. Most of the time it serves me well. There are a billion books out there and I'm not going to have time to read them all. But I know that when I quit just because I'm irritated or bored, I am sometimes missing things like what you experienced with this incredible empathy causing payoff, which I did not get. You know, if I if I shut this book and, and you and I part ways and I never open this again, I'm going to go through life going, this is a misogynistic book. I don't need to hear this white man whining about his life. Yeah, And I have missed something important about learning about another human being and and i that's a loss for me in a lot of ways well and i appreciate your willingness to to want to try it I, a bit of a dick move too when you're like hey come on my show what's your favorite book because i'm going to read it ahead of time i'm like oh yeah so there's this book it's almost 500 pages uh good luck with that <laughs> joy oh by the way i'm not going to tell you how much you hate this guy for three quarters of it enjoy julie enjoy can you tell in advance who to recommend this to? Do you know, can you tell of your friends? Can you think, oh, he would like this, she would hate this? Or do you just kind of recommend it willy-nilly and see who gets it? Absolutely willy-nilly. I recommend it to everybody. There isn't, like, anybody who asks, what is your favorite book? I will tell them why. In fact, mm. I make it, any of the clients that I work with, it's actually required reading. I make them read the book. I think Edward Abbey and watching Mike Birbiglia are great for learning Storycraft, more specifically, the art of telling a compelling story. Mm -hmm. Even if there's things about you that you are uncomfortable talking about, or there are things that um, you don't like about you, or that you know were negative, or you perceive as negative in your past, how to spin that negative into a positive, and then the compound effect. I make them read so that they understand it's. You're not going to get everything right now. That there is incremental growth and you can have incremental growth or you can have incremental retraction and they both work. You know, the, the, it's what you start today will have, will compound. So are you compounding a positive effect or are you compounding a negative effect? And you really need to understand when you're putting in those attention, uh, intentions into the world, what are you getting out of that? And then I make them read the four agreements because the four agreements is just genius for one and B it allow it, I think it has such a beautiful and simplistic structure on guiding 
on having really the best life that you could live. It, it, and it, it simplifies it down. And, and you can't just know, like anybody can Google the four agreements and see what they are and be like, okay, well, you know, I will never make assumptions. I'll always do my best, right? And you can just, but you, if you don't read the book, you don't understand the context to why those four things are so important, what they actually mean. Because a lot of people will try to do their best and, you know, and then uh, have an off day and be like, oh, well, no, I give it up. This thing doesn't work. And you're like, no, no, no. It's, it's your best each day and your best can change and morph each day based on circumstances of how it's around. And you just need to make sure that you're being honest with yourself because that's the other one. Always be honest with yourself. Uh, be good with your word is how it it's worded in it. And, um, and so if you're, if you're true to your word and you, you are always, if you're honest with who you are, you know, if you are doing your best or if you're not, and if you haven't done your best, why? And if you can say that you did your best, then you did your best that day. And you know that you can have the bad days. So I, I make, I, some of them have most of what I have people read have absolutely nothing to do with public speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even make them read my book. I'm like, if you want to, you can, it's there, go for it. But uh, I make them read it so that they can have a self-reflection on themselves and who they are and have some really good tools to move forward, whether they continue working with me or not. At least they'll have the four agreements to give them structure on how to live a really good day every day. And then they'll have the compound effect knowing that if they are what their intention is for the day and for the week and for the month and for the year so that they can go that they are building towards something as opposed to taking away from something and then i make them read the other two because i'm masochistic and i like (laughs) making people have 500 page homework (laughs) and what's the general response to that Uh, almost almost universally everybody is incredibly thankful at the end some people take longer particularly with the fool's progress Mm. but when, you know, I, 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 I love the discussion, right. And, and part of why I find this work so important, I think it's a beautiful exploration of how we can tell our story Mm. that our story can have impact. Tell me what you're reading right now. What's on your nightstand on my nightstand currently, um, mastering the game by Tony Robbins and I'm I'm actually waiting for a good friend of mine's book that just got published. I and I just finished reading um, "Get the Hell Out of Debt" by Erin Sky Kelly, and the book that I'm waiting for is actually her husband's book, Jared Morrison. Um, and so I'm I've I've got it on order, and I'm waiting for it to arrive. What's that called? Of Dreams and Angels. So Jared is one of the greatest writers I've ever known. I've known Jared since I, he was 14 and I was 15. Um, his story is his story to tell, but it is, it is heartbreaking unto itself and incredibly redeeming. Like his, his life, his biography is incredible, but this uh, fictional work is again, this is, this is Jared's tools progress semi-autobiographical as I understand it. I don't know because I haven't read it and it's just what I understand from what I've read. Semi-autobiographical and and goes through um, a really good exploration of, uh, of, of redemption, really. Well, Tyler, listen, here's what I'm going to promise you. I'm not going to promise you I'm going to finish it. I'm going to do my best. <laughs> I promise you that if and when I finish it, I will publicly acknowledge via some form of social media that you were right and I was wrong. <laughs> oh, don't do that. Just I, acknowledge that you got to the end and then give your honest thoughts because I okay. still may not be right. 
I just feel that you need to get to the end to understand if I was or wasn't. Okay. That fair. Yeah. That is a fair deal. Yeah. Um, why don't you share with our listeners where they can find you and all of your work? Well, the best place is to just go to my website, which is seantylerfoley.com. And Sean is spelled the proper Irish way, S-E-A-N-T-Y-L-E-R-F-O-L-E-Y.com. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today. And I want to thank you for uh, introducing me to this book and being so kind about the fact that I couldn't finish it. And I hope you will come back anytime you have a book you want to recommend to me because... um, this is really fun talking to you about this. I really feel like I learned something. I'll, I'll give you a list of my five top favorites, and you can you can pick it. and, we'll, and we'll, we'll we'll you can pick the one that you're like, okay, I know I can get through this. <laughs> okay, so I bet your next question is, did I ever finish this book? It has been about a month since Tyler and I recorded this conversation, and I have picked it up twice since then but have not gotten very far either time. But also, I have not donated it to the free library, so I don't know, something in me is not willing to give up on this book yet. I would love to hear if you've read The Fool's Progress, and I would love to hear your thoughts on finishing challenging books. Let me know what you think over on Instagram at Best Book Ever Podcast. Links to everything we discussed are in the show notes or on my website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. Now, it's that time of year when I start talking to young people about their favorite books for our annual holiday episode, The Kids YA Gift-Giving Guide. If you know a young person ages 5 to 20 who would like to tell me about their favorite book, click on the application in the show notes. This episode is my most popular and my favorite to record every year because kids are my favorite people, and I cannot wait to hear what books they are loving this year. I've put links to previous kids' episodes in the show notes if you want to check them out, and I cannot wait to hear from you. Thank you for joining me today, and I will see you at the library.